This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. than 20 years since the murders at KK's Corner. Good evening, I'm Cynthia Arsenault. And I'm Dillian Corder. Though one man is in prison, there is still a second killer who has never been brought to justice. This weekend, the case will again receive national attention on the ID channel. KPLC's Teresa Schmidt talks to one of those interviewed. July 6, 1997. Three bodies were found in the store freezer at KK's Corner. Stacy Reeves, Marty LaBeouf, and Nicole Guidry, all dead. 23 years have passed. Though one man, Tom Sisko, is in prison for the murders, investigators have no doubt he did not act alone. Former District Attorney Rick Bryant prosecuted Sisko. I know he didn't do it alone. There's no doubt in my mind there were at least two people. And I base that on, number one, to control three people uh, in, a, in a store is difficult enough. But number two, our eyewitness, Virginia Johnson, saw two people. In fact, she's the one who did the composite drawing uh, un- under hypnosis on one, and the other individual had the rabbit foot keychain, which is Thomas Sisko. Bryant says he's pretty sure he knows who the second killer is. This guy was from New Orleans, and he was Sisko's, one of Sisko's best friends, and he is a perfect match to the composite drawing that was shown on TV. Is he still alive? Yes. He is still alive, okay. But he had an alibi with his girlfriend. And he claims he was never in Lake Charles. Brian is doubtful a second person will ever be brought to justice. Thomas Sisko is a liar. He's named about six different accomplices he had, and they all turned out to be lies. Number two, there's no DNA. Number three, there are no fingerprints. So the only way you could get another person or, uh, or to try someone is either they confess or we find a videotape that was stolen that night from the store Uh, something of that nature. Other than that, I don't know how we'll ever find out who the other person was because we can't believe a word Cisco says. Bryant admits he would love to see the other killer arrested and convicted. I would be the happiest man alive if we found the second shooter, the second person involved. Trust me, I would be happy. I would go back and the DA could hire me and I would prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law and seek the death penalty. But reality is based on what we know, and 20 years later, I just think that that is just so impossible to do because the only witness who truly knows who did it is Thomas Sisko, and he is useless as a witness. Brian is one of those interviewed for the national program called Killer in Question on the ID channel. The episode is called Man with the Rabbit's Foot which refers to Cisco. At your service, Teresa Schmidt, KPLC 7 News. Once again, the episode on KK's Corner comes on at 8 p.m. Central Time this Sunday night on the ID Channel. Again, that program is called Killer in Question, and the episode is named The Man with the Rabbit's Foot. So we've been talking about different Louisiana cases this fall. 
I did want to mention, well, I guess ask more than mention, the Heidi Plank case. The, the This is the California case. She's still missing, I guess. Is that as, your understanding of it? As far as I know, yeah. I wasn't following that case, and so I'm confused because I thought maybe they had just released it, but then I, I'm not sure where they released footage of her walking her dog. Yeah, I was trying to figure out the date on that stuff. That's kind of where I was headed. I just need the sequence of events, really, because so she left her home in her car with her dog. And then at some point in time, uh, there was like just some sort of surveillance footage from somewhere indicating that like, oh, we have, you know, we know her whereabouts like later than what they had of her leaving her home. And so the issue I have is she's seen walking her dog, but her vehicle's missing. Yes, and Mike and Cher, about a half an hour after the video we're about to show you was taken, her dog was mysteriously found up on the 29th floor in this high rise here beside me. As for Heidi, she was never seen again. We're told this is missing mom, Heidi Plank, walking her dog October 17th around 6.30 at night near the Flower and Hope High Rise in downtown L.A. Her dog would be found on the 29th floor of that building about a half an hour later. As for Heidi, she's never been seen again. We obtained this footage from a resident in a building near Hope and Flower. We reached out to two of Heidi's friends who have been searching morning, noon, and night for her to get their reaction to this newly discovered video. She looked like she knew where she was going. I mean, in the video, it looks like she was just simply taking her dog for a quick walk. I mean, she doesn't have her purse on her. She doesn't have keys in her hand. Other video from that day shows Heidi leaving her mid-city home with her dog and route to her 11-year-old son's football game in Downey. Family and friends say she seemed antsy at the game and left early. Why she then turned up near this downtown LA high-rise is a mystery. There's no connection that she has that I'm aware of. Um, so I feel like that's yeah, another one of the mysteries is what was she doing there? Who did she know there? It's been almost a month now since anyone has seen her. We have confirmed that there were several staff who knew her, recognized her, recognized her dog. Her ex-husband thinks her disappearance has to do with her boss at Camden Capital Partners, Jason Sugarman. Sugarman is facing federal charges for allegedly swindling some $43 million in pension funds from a Native American Indian tribe. Sugarman happens to be the son-in-law of Peter Goober, the co-owner of the Dodgers, Golden State Warriors, the L.A. Football Club, and Mandalay Entertainment. Here's video of Sugarman at Plank's home a day or two after she vanished, leaving donuts on her doorstep. Detectives have remained tight-lipped about this case. Meantime, her friends say they'll continue to do all they can to find Heidi. It's painstaking, and uh, we're tired, and our hearts and our heads hurt. And Heidi's Champagne Range Rover has also yet to be found. For now, reporting live in downtown L.A., Mary Beth McDade will send it back to you guys in the studio. And, you know, maybe they just haven't found it yet. It seems like that would be lame if they haven't found it yet. But eh, she left her phone and her computer at home. 
which the computer, I can see the phone is a little weirder. And her dog was found wandering around on an apartment building floor. And I think it's the apartment building they got the footage from. Yeah, it's the Hope and Flower, but the dog was on the 28th floor. Well, clearly he got in there somehow. Yeah, that was really strange to me. You know, just certain cases have like one or two things that stand out. And you just pretty much named why this one is even on my mind. Um, So I think somebody could have just let the dog in the building, honestly. And then I I wonder, so it seems to me like, the dog being found on the 28th floor makes you want to take a good look around the perimeter to see if somebody jumped. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Except like, why would you, so she has a, a child. Uh, I believe the child's like 10 or 11. She's missed this child's birthday. So between the time she went missing and now he turned 11. And so she's, she's, dead i mean there's no question that uh this is you know it's a sad situation but uh having missed her child's birthday i would say there's no question um now was it an accident uh because her car is missing it makes me think well maybe she just drove off into the water right except then i go back to the surveillance footage of her walking the dog and I think to myself, well, what'd she do? Drop the leash, then get back in her car without her dog? Like, I can't well, put that, I can't figure out. She didn't have a phone, so it's not like anybody was, like, calling her and making her mad, right? Right. Uh, they haven't given any connection that she possibly knew somebody living in the apartment building. Have you heard anything about that? No, they haven't said anything about that. They they basically said that she left her son's football game on October the 17th at halftime. And the then they released the footage of her walking around. And she's she's reported missing on October the 20th when she fails to pick up her kid from school. And that was three so, days later. Yeah, that's three days later. Like, but she had like she they I'll tell you what, this is so I complain about past revered type situations, but they have done a really good job of trashing Heidi in different media outlets about the things that have gone on. So she was married to this guy, uh, James Wayne back in 2008. And then four years later they get divorced and then they basically start uh, having custody issues in late 2014 and all the way into 2015, it's sort of playing out in the court. And they, so that's what drew my attention to it. But the father was only awarded full custody of their son uh, in October. In, in six days before she disappeared, he gets custody of the kid. Um, but he also reported her missing. He did, and he was the one who uh, figured out the dog. Yeah, he ends up retrieving the dog because of messages to her phone, which were left at home. But you know, I can never tell with custody documents. Like I, so sometimes the stuff that's in custody documents can be overblown. It always uh, does, just about because you're trying yeah, to make your point. Yeah, 
with um so there were incidents where she was accused of trashing her kid's bedroom and jumping out of a window and climbing but over all a of fence. that was like a few years ago at least right it it was multiple years ago yeah the kid was 4 at the time so, so there wasn't anything like brand new right Nothing that I saw in there. There was some 2017 stuff, but it seemed more like reporting than it seemed like uh, new stuff. But she did go into a psychiatric facility in October of 2015. Uh, You know, and normally in a situation like this, I would just look at the ex-husband and be like, that's the guy. But it doesn't, it seems like everything was going his way. I I don't feel like he did this. Um, you do realize her boss was being investigated, right? Yeah, I realized that there was a couple of people in her life. Uh, I didn't understand exactly what's going on there, but I realized that it was probably a big deal. He's been accused of embezzling two figure millions. I don't know exactly what the number is. Um, from it's a fraud scheme, right? I, I don't know, but he's been accused of embezzling a large amount of money and the comment that's been made of they felt like she would have knowledge of the situation. Well, she was the financial controller for the company, which makes me wonder. Uh, the company is Camden Capital Partners, and one of the guys is already doing 15 years in federal prison at San Pedro. Well, whatever I read, it just said that um, her relationship with whomever was being looked into by the Securities and Exchange Commission, like at this particular time that's relevant to her disappearance, she would have had like uh, daily interactions with him. And so that would be, you know, what we, you know, it's a vital witness to whatever's happening. And so that gives it sort of a skew, but it's possible that it had nothing to do with that. Um, because nothing has happened yet. It's, they're just investigating it. But uh, I would like to know if she typically let, who leaves their phone at home ever? I, you know, I sometimes leave my phone at home. It's not always on purpose, but I, I don't, I don't necessarily take it with me everywhere. I, I, it, that's less likely to happen in, in the current time. But uh, I used to go without a phone. Like, for years, I did not actually have Okay, well, but she has a 10-year-old kid who wasn't with her. Right. Okay. And so if her kid had been with her, I could see that. But it's really hard for a parent with a youngish child to not get into contact with them. Like, if necessary. yeah. And so sort of based on that... um, it, I find it really odd, and it's almost like she, like maybe she thought somebody was tracking her, and she wanted to not be tracked. Um, that's what popped into my head because of just sort of the way everything went down, according to what's been reported. Now, if they find her vehicle, right? Um, my opinion will change. Uh, actually, I don't have a great opinion because I still can't figure out. I mean, did she think to herself, like, let me put my dog in this apartment building before I commit suicide? Or did she think, like, because I would say because her vehicle is missing, until it's found, she drove herself off into water somewhere, but probably by accident, right? Except... That it's hard to do that where she is. Well, no, it doesn't account for the dog being in the apartment building. Yeah, I, so 
I so I went and read up on the bosses that they're talking about in the news, and these are all like if you skim through the articles, you'll see mentions of their names. Uh, one of them, Jason Galanis, he was sentenced in September of 2020 for a part in a scheme from 2009 to 2011, and I keep wondering if, if like, how long had she been there, and is she a part of any of that or the fallout from that? Because it that scheme, uh, the cover-up for that scheme actually runs all the way to 2018. But when I looked at that, that guy got 15 years in prison for participation in multiple fraudulent sc- schemes to manipulate the market for uh, Jerova Financial Group. Uh, it's a publicly traded company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And they also got him for defrauding the shareholders. And it was big numbers. Now, with Galanis... Uh, his numbers were in the 80, 85 million dollars. I think he had to forfeit, but they thought the scheme might be over a hundred million dollars. Now the other guy, he hasn't, he's under investigation. They haven't sort of revealed if Heidi Plank is involved in all of this at all, but I don't, that's another $40 million scam. And it, that's the current one being investigated, right? Right, yeah. And so it so the theory would be that, you know, if she is no longer available to give any sort of witness accounts, perhaps the case wouldn't move forward. Yeah, and so here like okay, as I was saying, I could see me leaving the house with no phone. But here's where it gets weird for me. And I don't know anything about this woman except what I've read in court documents and what I've seen put out in the media. But it's rare that a dog owner would just drop leash and go. And I keep picturing – because in one of the early articles I read here, they said that Sugarman, this other guy who was uh, linked to Galanis, they said that he had been seen bringing her muffins – or After something. she disappeared, and it was at her house. That so, seems so. It's that smells bad. Like yeah, that that seems like I was going to get something. And what I was wondering was if if she didn't get chased, well, and that's why the dog got dropped. Well, and so that would be something. Except, okay. Well, I guess that would explain it because I was going to say, well, if she was taken, right? Um, because that would being taken would make you drop the leash possibly. Right. Yes. Okay. But then like, why is her car not found? Uh, cause somebody got rid of it, I guess. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to get rid of a car. And that's not to say that it just hasn't been found yet. We're not, they're in LA, right? Right. This is Los Angeles. And so, you know, there's, gazillions of cars there but i think that um so the guy bringing the muffins i felt like that was well i don't know how many times he's brought her muffins previously but i would say that that would be something where he could say later like well i dropped off muffins why would i have done that if i kidnapped and murdered her right right and that's horrifying but you know if he brought her muffins once a week for the past 10 years then that's a different story Right. It could well, be completely, you know, benign. But so they didn't, the, the, the ex-husband, father of her child, I guess he had the child. You said he had custody, right? Yeah. And so she was at the football game and she left. And I believe they said that she appeared to be on edge 
right? That's how she was described. Yeah. It so again the whole I and I don't know how the football game lines up with the footage of her leaving her house with the dog and then her being somewhere else walking the dog. I don't know the sequence of events there. I mean, I know she probably left her house before she was walking the dog, right? (laughs) That makes sense. But, you know, there's 30 miles between those two places. Yeah, I'm aware. And so, you know, it's it's shocking. Um, And... I could, so I've tried to figure it out. Like maybe she, um, you know, snuck the dog into the apartment. Maybe she knew somebody was after her and she didn't want her dog to, you know, because there was no reason for her to um, abandon her dog. Her ex-husband has her dog now and I believe he's caring for it, right? And so like what? You know, did the dog sneak into the building? Did she take it into the building? How did it get on the 28th floor? There's security cameras pointed out. Are there any inside? Uh, I don't know yet, but I, my guess is this. When I looked at this, uh, the Galanis scheme that he got sentenced for, there's like 10 co-conspirators uh, of varying degrees. Here's my my guess. If there's a second scheme running that these people are attached to. And I don't, I don't know that it's even a scheme. I'm just saying that from the perspective of uh, it's a possibility. I think that th- you need to look at those people. Around, I'm, I'm betting someone, because I looked up the rent on the, the building, I'm betting someone from all of this lives in that building. Like someone from her work. Or someone from the schemes who's related to her work lives in Open Flower. Well, I mean, I guess that's possible, but it seems it seems like the dog wouldn't have been found there if that was the case. I I, I was wondering if maybe somebody in this mix is like the good person, and that's where she was headed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that any of that has to do with anything. And I also um, I feel like it would be misguided to think that with what I've read about what was happening as far as the criminal activity um, that the SEC is investigating and have previously investigated with regard to this group of people that she was associated with through her work. Um, I don't think that eliminating one human witness was going to make a big difference. Yeah, but she is the financial controller. She is a financial controller. There's no, well, there's more than one at the company. Right. And so, again, you know, she's just sort of a conduit for the job. The job would still have electronic digital trails that could be, you know, examined without her there. There's not a whole lot that can be. I don't feel like it was her personally that would be adding so much to it because, it they could if if it that's the case because think about it if she ha- holds the key to everything well then it's just her word against theirs anyway all this stuff I, I don't see I don't know that it's going to be a strong motive for somebody to now as far as somebody getting mad that she was uh 
whatever she was doing. They haven't said for certain she was cooperating, right? They haven't said anything like that. Uh, And by they, I mean the media haven't released any information indicating that she was doing anything that would warrant somebody interfering with her as a witness. And so until we sort of hear that, we don't know. Right. I was trying to read this thing about her. I pulled up this stupid declaration, and I was trying to read the fine print on it. What declaration? So this is the factual background from 2015 where she is trying to fight custody, and he's basically trying to take the kid. Mm-hmm. Have you read this? Um, possibly. Okay, they picked some really weird things to point out about her in here. Specifically when it comes to substance abuse and this whole incident where she keeps offering everyone bacon. Have you Yeah, I read that. I um I was very confused by that and I also felt like that to me is so outrageous that I feel like help would be warranted like yeah it almost seems like uh, so substance abuse can explain parts of it but the rest of it like uh, so uh, i'm saying this in in the most polite way i can how is this person a financial controller for anything well part of her job was also like an administrative assistant i'm just saying like it, she had an interesting, I don't know much about the company, but I know that she, I'm just from what I read, she didn't like, it wasn't a huge deal. She wouldn't have had any sort of, um, ultimate say in anything. So she like, she's not going to be one of the people getting charged because she wouldn't have had her job. Wasn't that kind of job. Yeah. That makes more sense. They're basically saying in this document, they're saying she's addicted to Adderall and she was doctor shopping. Well, see, and anytime, and you're right about the bacon thing. And there were several other examples that we don't really have to share because uh, it lent me to wonder why they hadn't been pushing for her to get mental help. Uh, or at least a serious psychiatric evaluation. Other Because it, it seems like every time she ends up seeing someone for assistance, it's more like she's being – it's more like they never get past trying to treat her for substance abuse. So based on everything that I read as far as the case that was made against her, like for her husband to take custody of their child – I would say that more than likely she committed suicide. She has driven her vehicle off of a cliff or something. And uh, now that I'm thinking about it, um, you know, the dog has really bothered me. But there were some other things mentioned in the court filings that would make me think that she might think that putting a dog in a random apartment building was a good idea. Um depending on what was influencing her brain at the moment. Right. Um, and if so, it, maybe she felt like the dog would be safe there. Somebody would like the dog's so cute. Somebody would take it, make yeah. it their dog. But um, <sighs> if she had just lost custody of her son, uh, that had just been ruled on. Is that right? 
Six days, yeah. So see, she might have, um, she could have committed suicide or she might have been distraught and had an accident. I don't know. I would have to. I usually would go with accident and water here. Is that what you're thinking? Well, yeah, because I feel like um, she could, but it, I feel like it's got to be more towards like intentional though, because she left the dog behind. So let's say she's walking along with the dog. And, you know, I guess the dog just needed to do its business or they haven't elaborated on anything about what she was doing. And I find it hard to believe that there were no additional cameras in that area, just the one. Well, so this is the, the reason I'm even mentioning this case. The footage that just came out. So it come it comes out November 11th, 2021. And she's been missing since October 17th. But this is the thing that made me wonder about all of this is this footage came out with the header on KTLA, the news um, in Los Angeles video shows missing mom, Heidi Plank in downtown LA minutes before her disappearance. And from everything I've looked at here and this timeline I've, I've gone through from what I can see of it, how do they know it's minutes before her disappearance? Oh, I think that's an easy answer because the dog you think it's related to the dog? Okay, well, that would make sense. Um, because I feel like they compared the timing with when maybe the dog was first spotted versus when, like, a couple finally, like, took the dog. And they, I guess the dog had on a collar. And so they had been trying to text her about the dog. And the, her husband saw the messages on the phone that she had left at home, which is how he knew the dog was at the apartment building. And so he went and got the the dog. But I assume it's because, um, like, whenever it came up later uh, and they went to talk to the, the police, went to talk to the people, because she wasn't reported missing till the 20th because she didn't pick her son up from school. And her, hus- her ex-husband, her child's father, uh, was concerned. And so now nobody at work reported her missing, right? Right. So... You know, that's kind of, I mean, it is what it is, I guess. So I guess, you know, after it became a thing where they're looking into it, they went to the people who had the dog and they were like, oh, yeah, we saw the dog at this time or whatever occurred. And I guess from that, they discerned that it was mere minutes after she was caught on video. So generally speaking, I think an accident caused by the distress of the situation or a suicide would make sense here. But I wouldn't rule out that like something nefarious came to her. And now that we talked about it together, I don't think I'm, I don't think it's going to be related to her actual job, but maybe something she potentially witnessed. Yeah. I don't know about, I don't know about any of it really being um, relevant. It, it has a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and she does have a very unfortunate history that doesn't, it doesn't help her, you know, credibility. But having missed her child's birthday, I know something happened to her. Um, if they don't find her vehicle, I would say she's in the Pacific Ocean more than likely. Um, and, you know, it just is what it is. And because the dog was left behind, I would have to say that it was at least subconsciously intentional because, like, Otherwise, the dog would have just been with her if it was a true accident. 
Yeah. The other thing is perhaps the dog got off, like ran away, like somehow. I I suppose it's possible. This is one of those cases I look at and I really hope the police know more than they're telling the I don't, media. I don't think they do. And I think it's just one of those things where um, she was perfectly safe, right? There was no indication that anything was going to harm her. I don't think there was. No. And because of that, you've got an adult woman with her dog and the dog is found abandoned and eventually, you know, gets returned to her ex-husband. But I hate to say that, like, I don't think there's more to that even for law enforcement, but most of the things that end up with this having a bad outcome would be the person's own doing. Right. <laughs> right. And, there's no evidence of any third party involvement at this point in time. None at all. And, and the fact that, you know, her vehicle is still missing. Um, it, it, I don't know if they find the vehicle, I'll change my mind. I would say that I would suspect foul play if they find the vehicle. Um, but without that vehicle, who who knows? I mean, it would have fit perfectly in what I read for her to have been like, I think a nice person would live here. And, you know, for her to just put the dog in the lobby or whatever. <laughs> because that's the kind of impression I got from some of her um, episodes that were, you know, filed with the courts. Yeah, just from the way that she was presented, I guess. Like, I don't want to... Uh, I hate all of that for her. I hate it for all of them. I hate it for her child. I hate it for her. I hate it for her um, former husband. It It's just a disaster. Um, I think that one of the, if you're going to commit suicide, you're it's selfish. It's a selfish thing to do. However, I feel like one of the things that people who are going to commit suicide could do if they're going to commit suicide is to let everybody know that you're going to commit suicide. So it's not this big question. Yeah, I I suppose that's true. Well, so the way that this the way that this segues into what we were talking about with the Jeff Davis aid is sometimes like you've got this fraud stuff happening, these underlying schemes, and sometimes that has nothing to do with like a, a case that suddenly comes to light. And in this instance just because there's stuff going on behind the scenes at the company where Heidi Plank works doesn't mean that it's related to her going missing. With the Jeff Davis 8, there's been interesting things happening uh, by the time that case occurs, uh, certainly by the time it gets attention. Stuff has been going on there for 30 years. and It begins way back in 1991, actually in a neighboring parish called Calcasieu. And where the sources are for this, the strangest sources to me. One of them is the Rolling Stone from 2016. They did a September 27, 2016 article by Katie Drell about uh, Ethan Brown's work uh, and his book, Murder in the Bayou. And then Ethan's book itself, Murder in the Bayou, is um, one of the, the sort of end-all, be-all sources for the 2005 to 2009 Murders, And he starts off early on talking about other murders happening nearby, uh, including this one in Calcasieu, which is actually a double murder. And that's the 
the death of Pam Ellender and Eric Ellender. Okay, what's interesting about this is, first of all, the proximity to to Jennings uh, and to Jeff Davis Parish uh, is it's really close. They, they're close to each other, and I, I guess you would call them neighbors. Is that what you call adjacent counties? Yes. With this one, this is not a missing person. This is just a straight up homicide that occurs about 30 minutes to the west of where most of the the Jennings cases take place. Maybe a little more, depending on how you drive it. So at approximately 2 p.m. on February 12th of 1991, um, Nella Haygood rushed next door to check on her granddaughter, Pam Ellender. Uh, This is Mardi Gras, by the way. No one had heard from Pam or her husband, Eric, since Lundi Gras, which is the Monday before Mardi Gras. Uh, and Lundi Gras is usually uh, reserved for friends and families to have meals and to make last-minute alter- alterations and preparations to their costumes and the festivities for Fat Tuesday. So Pam's absence had stood out to everybody. And Nella looked into the carport, and she saw that Eric's car was there. She walked to the front of the house and looked in the window and inside she could see there was a gun on the floor surrounded by shotgun shells. She later told investigators that Pam never went to bed with the house messed up and she considered the guns laying around. The guns themselves were not that big a deal, but the fact that there were shells laying all over the place made her think that that something was wrong. Um, So she went in. The bedroom, the door, the front door was ajar. She went inside and she went up to the bedroom. And Eric and Pam were in bed under the covers, but they weren't moving. And when she pulled back the sheets, she found Eric lying face up. He was only wearing his underwear. He had one eye open, one eye closed. And Pam was lying next to him, uh, wearing just a shirt. And she could hear her year and a half old great granddaughter, Erica, crying from a crib in another room. Basically, she calls 911 the sheriff's deputies start arriving and they start piecing together this investigation now overall this is not a mystery for very long because a mardi gras evening which is about just a few hours later the baton rouge police department act on a tip and they apprehend four white guys all in their late teens early 20s uh, named christopher prudhomme Robert Atkins, Robert Gentry, and Robert Messick, and a Toyota 4Runner that was owned by Pam and Eric. The police searching the suspect's apartments find Eric's 12-gauge shotgun, which had been freshly sawed off. That's when the barrel is cut down, and sometimes the stock as well to make it a, a weapon that you can conceal. And Atkins, Robert Atkins, confessed that he and Prudholm had disposed of an infant seat and a baby stroller from the Ellender home uh, in a drainage canal. Those items were recovered exactly where Atkins said they were. So they took a series of incriminating statements from the people around these four suspects. And this is one of those things that, like, sort of for me becomes, like, larger than life. A friend of Christopher Prudholm said that he had been watching Helter Skelter with Chris just before the murders. And that later in the early morning hours of February the 13th, Robert Atkins and Prudholm visited his home visibly shaken. They looked very scared. Uh, and he, he told everyone there that they had done something bad. And when they asked what he had done, he told them not to worry about it. He didn't want anyone in on it. So sensing that there would be facing an 
insurmountable evidence amount of evidence against them. Prudholm confesses to the slayings, but he insists that he acted alone. And a videotape statement to investigators, he says, I went and shot him. I shot the guy. He had a hole in his head. And the lady, when she jumped, I shot her too in the face. And in the wake of the statements, he was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder, punishable by life in prison without the possibility of parole or death. Atkins ended up being charged as an accessory after the fact. Uh, for a small town, uh, this town is uh, Sulphur, Louisiana, is the name of the town, even though we use the parish names quite a bit. Sulphur is a small town. At the time, it had less than 20,000 people. This was for the people in the town to have this case wrap up as quickly as it did. This was how the criminal justice system seemed like it was supposed to work, which rarely happens in a lot of cases. So it's sort of viewed as a miracle in Brown's words. Two weeks later, Prudholm was found hanging from a shower stall in the parish jail. The noose had been fashioned from torn bed sheets. Prudholm left a long suicide note, which he proclaimed the innocence of his co-defendants, Robert Atkins and Robert Messick. And the note Prudholm asserted again, he was solely responsible for the Ellender slaughter. Neither of them knew positively of my actions, had no reason to believe in my acts of violence, which I would also like to say I enjoyed very much in the taking of those two individuals' lives. Prudholm signed off his suicide note by quoting lyrics from a song by Houston thrash rockers, DRI. Fuck the system. It can't have me. I don't need society. So with Prudholm dying, the parish considered the Ellender case closed. But Huey Littleton, who was Pam Ellender's father, he was not convinced that justice has been served. And he hired private investigators who continued to interview witnesses. According to those interviewed, there were more than a dozen people in the Ellender's bedroom when they were killed. Huey Littleton found Prudholm's repeated assertions of responsibility, specifically sole responsibility, to be suspicious. Prudholm wrote in his suicide note, I will not be able to testify in court, a statement of defiance, given that the question of guilt was not settled, but also a bizarre one, too, since he had already confessed. So the thinking became, was Prudholm saying that he would not be used to convict others who were perhaps more culpable? And Huey wanted to know who he was protecting and why. So this kicks off like this crazy series of events that I'll, I'll just ask you. You read uh, Murder in the Bayou about the same time I did, right? Right. What Did you think any of this was related or it was just malfeasance sort of being documented? Because this is even before the Dateline expose. Yeah, I, I don't think any of it is... Uh related any more than anything else is. <laughs> it's just like bad uh it, yeah, it's a documentation of just random malfeasance. <laughs> That's sort of what it feels like. One of the things that did stand out to me though was uh Littleton and the the private investigators he was using, they dug into um the Calcasieu Parish jail and they were able to figure out that it would have been very difficult for Prudholm to kill himself and that Prudholm had been led into a shower by the jail's intake officer, who was a guy named Dave Carson. Dave Carson has some stuff sort of hanging over him because he's connected to an earlier death that is considered to be similar to Prudholm's. On May 7th of 1988, uh, there was a 21 year old patrolman named Stephen Sandlin working under Carson 
in Mon- Mountain Air, New Mexico. He was found dead in the department's offices uh, by a gunshot wound. Carson discovered Sandlin's body and service weapon just hours after the two had been arguing over traffic t- tickets. And Sandlin's autopsy results were inconclusive. And the end result was they only found insignificant traces of gunpowder on his hands, which essentially ruled out the possibility that he killed himself. And Sandlin's family, Sandlin's family had long maintained that he had been murdered. And Sandlin's father, father, Tom, even told Unsolved Mysteries that Steve's death was a homicide. I think they killed him to keep him quiet. At the point in time that Ethan Brown is putting all of this story together, uh, Dave Carson no longer works for the sheriff. He's a licensed private investigator down in Louisiana running basically a little investigative agency. So he tries to reach him and he can't reach him. Uh, he goes back through the notes that, that Littleton's investigators have made. And this is one of those cases where it was pretty much closed so quickly that the the paperwork on it's really thin. I don't know if that makes sense, but like they just don't, they basically write incident reports and narratives of uh, what happens with the suspects, but it does end up coming back into uh, the courts in 1995. In February of 1995, Robert Atkins was charged with two counts of second degree murder. And then Philip Ledoux and Kurt Dragon Reese were indicted as accessories after the fact. Uh, Reese pled guilty, and he received a two-year sentence. Ledoux went to trial and was convicted, but somehow only got four years. Hugh, Hugh Littleton was very disappointed in the sentences that came out of all of this. He had pushed really hard to see Ledoux and Reese uh, brought to justice for Pam and Eric's deaths. Which, do you think without that pushing, it would have happened at all? No, I don't. That's the thing. Like, I don't even... So, first of all... Even though there's like very little paperwork from the side of like the law enforcement in this case, Hugh Littleton, Huey Littleton, like racked up a lot of time, a lot of miles, and a lot of money trying to solve this case. It's his persistence that got this into court beyond Prudholm's suicide at all. And we talked about um, a little bit, actually, I don't know that it made it into the show, but we talked about it um, when we were doing. the McDonald case uh, about how, you know, Jeffrey McDonald's father-in-law is they got, they basically were the driving force behind him being arrested. Right. Right. And it's interesting in this case that sort of what transpired and sort of like the result and he was still not happy with it. Right. And I want, and so when we did the McDonald case, like we wondered, like, well, how often is it that, you know, the loudest one gets heard? And so, you know, if there's not somebody pushing for the justice uh, to happen, it just doesn't take place. And, you know, how fair is that in our justice system? It's it's weird. It's not fair. It shows some of the imbalance. And also the fact that Helter Skelter comes up in here was so weird to me. And I think that Brown sort of did it and like like poked at it, but it's in it's in the paperwork. So he's not wrong to mention it because that's another thing that comes up in the McDonald case. Well is um so who were the twelve people in the room? Like Well, we get so 
the the idea is that Prudhomme may not have even been there. And even though Littleton does what you just described, where he pushes and pushes to get justice, just like uh, Jeffrey, uh, just like um, Freddie and the Jeffrey McDonald case. Right. What he never comes up with is a really clear understanding of what happened. Law enforcement had suspected that it was a boss robbery of some kind, and they felt like they these people were influenced by substances and watching Helter Skelter. And like, it's just sort of a weird little theory they put together. There was one witness that um, the private investigator for Littleton came up with. Uh, this guy basically sort of confirmed to Littleton that uh, Chris Prudham was a fall guy. And Chip Richard, who was a confidant of several of the suspects in the Ellender case, he had said that Prudhomme wasn't even present at present at the Ellender house the night of the murders and that he had taken the fall for Ledoux and Atkins and no one knows why. Um, also Chip told the private investigators about a police officer who was supplying this group of people that, you know, 10 or 12 people with drugs that were seized out of I 10, which is where Brown connects all of this sort of like in the, the plank case where we're talking about fraud and this woman disappearing, this is now about these drug stops and seizures that they're sort of linking it back to this set of murders. And it's not just these two. That's what makes it so interesting. This guy, uh, Calcasieu Parish detective, Donald lucky Deluche, supposedly this is where they're getting the drugs and the drugs were taken out of vehicles that were traveling on I 10, but they're being put back on the streets for law enforcement, which is apparently according to Ethan Brown and according to Katie, this is, this is a documented practice that's seems common to them out of both Calcasieu and Jeff Davis parishes. Um, the hustlers called it, uh, this phenomenon supposedly, uh, dope on the streets, dope on the table, dope on the streets, meaning drugs that were seized on I-10 and then like show up in the pictures and the video for the media, then get resold by the cops. At this time in the 90s, this detective, Lucky, that they're talking about, he's the director of the Calcasieu's Violent Crimes Task Force, which is their homicide unit that comprises officers from the sheriff's office there at Calcasieu, the Louisiana State Police, and the local police departments. So this violent crimes task force are the people that are tasked with solving high-profile local homicides. Their most significant case comes on July 6th of 1997. Early that morning, uh, Stacy Reeves, Nicole Guidry, and Marty LaBeouf were killed in an apparent armed robbery at KK's Corner, which was a convenience store and gas station near the corner of Highway 14 and Tom Helbert Road in Calcasieu Parish. The victims were shot multiple times and their bodies were tossed into the store's cooler. Because the perpetrators left no physical evidence and had even removed the store's surveillance tape, the crime went unsolved for more than a year. The parish called in the FBI and the sheriff offered a reward of up to $100,000 for information leading to the arrest and the prosecution of the killers. Uh, the case went cold. No suspects were named. No official leads were announced. But... Behind closed doors, it was said that the sheriff's office was sitting on some pretty important information about the crime and that this secret information or intelligence that had been gathered 
possibly linked the KK corner murders, the triple murder there, to the double Allender homicide. The department said that they received 30 to 40 tips implicating Sheriff McElveen's of Calcasieu Paris' son. And according to a former Calcasieu Paris sheriff's deputy, this was all confirmed. A decade before young Richard Malcavine had allegedly been spotted at the Allenders on the night of their murder, he was now being implicated in this other murder case. So a decade before he kills the Allenders, and now he's being implicated as being part of this triple murder. My point in like recounting some of this is that this goes beyond police misconduct, and this goes beyond putting drugs back on the street. We now have somebody whose relatives are in power that is basically getting drunk, getting high, and killing people, and then talking about it, and it's all being covered up. Now, you got to remember, this is not in Jeff Davis Parish. This is in Calcasieu Parish. So it's, you know, basically the next neighboring parish to the west. Was, um, has the KK Corner uh, shooting ever been resolved? The reason I, um, I'm curious because I don't know if you realize this or not, but one of the victims, uh, not the teenage girl and not the boys, I think it was, um, the, it was the young lady, Stacy Reeves. That's, that's what her name was. She had twin baby daughters at the time, uh, that she was killed. Are you aware of this? Uh, I think I knew there were children. I don't think I knew they were twins. She had she had twin girls, and one of her daughters uh, passed away this year. Uh, she overdosed. And oh, I read that recently. You're right. And it was just really sad to me. And I was uh, so I've always I've thought about that. Um, she actually appeared on something and talked about it a little bit, and then not too much longer. <laughs> like it wasn't. Too, too much, too much time didn't go past before I saw where she had died and, um, it was an overdose. And so like, that's how, you know, she had issues because of, you know, having her mom taken when she was very young and I believe she was raised by her grandmother maybe, but it, you know, that stuff runs really deep. And so I was just curious, um, if it, uh, if it's been resolved, there is a person in prison for it who is sentenced to die. Uh, but his case has been in limbo for a while. And so I, I'm i stepping away from the Ethan Brown coverage for this for a second, just to like give you like the rundown on this. This guy, Thomas Francisco, was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to die. On appeal, his conviction was thrown out, and he spent five or six years going through the appellate process. Finally, uh, in 2010, he ends up being allowed to plead guilty to three counts of manslaughter. But there's questions about whether or not he did it on his own. And as recently as 2020, I found articles in the local news down there, particularly with KPLC, which is uh, the Lake Charles, Louisiana news, uh, talking about uh, what I'm about to, to say. Uh, this article is from the KPLC TV website from Teresa Teresa Schmidt on November 13, 2020. 
Uh, it's been more than 20 years since the murders at KK's Corner. Although one man is in prison, there's still a second killer who has never been brought to justice. And this weekend, the case will once again receive national attention on the ID channel. Uh, July 6th of 1997, three bodies were found in the store freezer at KK's Corner. And we obviously, this is the case we're talking about. And although one man, Tom Sisko, is in prison for the murders, investigators have no doubt he did not act alone. Former District Attorney Rick Bryant said, I know he didn't do it alone. There's no doubt in my mind there were at least two people, and I based that on number one, to control three people in a store is difficult enough, but number two, an eyewitness, Virginia Johnson, saw two people. In fact, she's the one who did the composite drawing under hypnosis on one, and the other individual had the rabbit foot keychain, and that's Thomas Sisko. Bryant says he's pretty sure he knows who the second killer is. This guy was from New Orleans. He's Cisco's, one of Cisco's best friends. He's a perfect match to the composite drawing that was shown on it. Bryant says the man is still alive, but that he has an alibi. He claims he was with his girlfriend and he was never in Lake Charles, said Bryant. Bryant is doubtful a second person will ever be brought to justice in this case. He says Thomas Cisco is a liar. He's named about six different accomplices he had, and they all turned out to be lies. Number two, there's no DNA. Number three, there's no fingerprints. So the only way you could try someone is if they confess or we find the videotape that was stolen that night from the store security camera, something of that nature. Other than that, I don't know how we'll find out who the other person was because I don't believe a word Thomas Sisko says. Is he the guy who kept calling them in and just making up stories? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting, and the reason I like threw him into this episode is – so, okay, is this related to the Jefferson Davis Parish cases? Probably not, but it does take place, and it is in the backstory that Rolling Stone puts out there, the different media that you can look at out there. But this is what was interesting to me. What if there were that many people involved, and he just doesn't know who was standing with him with his face covered at that moment or whatever because there were so many of them involved because that's what keeps coming up in these cases. So throughout just, the Jeff Day, go ahead. I have a really hard time thinking because um, these these guys aren't like, I mean, I don't want to put them down or anything, but it's not like, it's almost like they've got a couple of screws loose, right? And and a lot of times it seems like it's from, um, you know, uh, substance abuse, right? And so it, it just seems like the more that would be involved, like the less likely it would go on and on unsolved. You mean just from people talking? Yeah. Well, they had the one guy. I don't know how hard they looked. I I always wonder about these cases. Like, why do they automatically say there's no DNA, no fingerprints on a you know on a case that old? I think that they didn't collect any. Oh, I see what you're saying. They're not saying it didn't exist. They're saying that back in 1997, it wasn't collected, and it's not like they could go collect it now. But you know, I find it really hard to believe, especially this um, the guy that we're talking about here. That you know, he's just. He just has gone crazy from what I've seen of his, um, he's in, cause he's, uh, is he still convicted of it? It was overturned. He pled guilty to manslaughter okay. and now he, I believe he's still alive and in prison. Okay. And so whenever it was happening, 
I mean, he was just putting on a show for everybody. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. So I find it really hard for somebody like that. Okay. Because you have to think about it. Can you really have this guy who's clearly got some screw loose, screws loose, right? Can you have this guy do this and, like, get away with it for so long? He, It just doesn't seem like he's got it that together, right? And then to say, like, oh, there's all these other people involved, well, maybe. But it seems like uh, they aren't real loyal to one another in a lot of situations. And so, it'd be, you know, the first one that talks gets the get-out-of-jail-free card. The deal, card. yeah. And so you would think that, you know somebody would be speaking up, but I just, I, I had a lot of trouble wrapping my head around all of that, that was happening with that case, um, with that period of time in that area. Right. Um, because it is, um, it does seem really, uh, malicious. And so I, I wanted to ask you, do you think that the alibi of the person in question being with his girlfriend and not being at Lake Charles. It, do, do you find that to be a substantial enough alibi? Generally speaking, I, I have trouble with the contradiction in the district attorney's words saying he has an alibi, but I'm pretty sure it's him. I want to know why he thinks that. And like, I mean, he, he comes around and says, look, we, we'd have to have the videotape or something from that night that we didn't have before in order to try anybody else in this case, or we'd have to have them confessing, which to me, I don't like confessions are bullshit anyways. Like there, is he, you need something is else. The guy that's in prison for it. Is he still alive? Um, I think, think so let me look him up really great i i that was a question i had but i didn't look it up in time um so according to november 13 2021 2020 he's in custody okay so he is still alive then yeah he's in angola so uh, thomas cisco is alive he's in angola well, I was checking to make sure you didn't have a death record. And then I noticed that his registration in the Louisiana prison system was as of 2011. So I went to find a more recent record. That's what was taking so long in the pause there. I was looking to make sure I wasn't misstating that. Cisco is alive. He is in prison. Uh, you know, Ethan Brown tries to get a hold of the cop that's involved in this uh, this mess here. At one point in time, this is Brown writing it, Cisco implicates uh, McElveen's son, saying that he was paid to kill KK's victim, Stacey Reeves, because she knew too much about her former boyfriend, Kevin Abel, who had been killed in a drug-related matter in which McElveen was involved. The sheriff's office claimed that Abel's death was a suicide, which Reeves told a friend was false information. So this is one of the KK victims. The case against Cisco was placed by all sorts, plagued by all sorts of serious ethical problems from the conflicts inherent in Cisco's legal representation to the credible leads about the sheriff's son that should have been, should have led to a recusal of the sheriff's office from the case. Nonetheless, in the fall of 
2000, Cisco was tried and convicted on the first degree murder charges. Then in 2003, the Louisiana State Supreme Court reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial because Cisco did not knowingly and intelligently waive his right to conflict-free representation by appointed counsel. Cisco's uh, attorneys ultimately brokered a deal to avoid the death penalty, convincing Cisco to plead guilty to three counts of manslaughter, serving a sentence of 90 years in prison. Both the Ellender case and KK's Corners case were marred by accusations involving the sheriff's son, but allegations of misconduct were also directed at Deluche, the lucky guy, um, who had been part of the Violent Crimes Task Force. He pursued Cisco in 1997 but started to face some serious criminal charges of his own. His ex-wife came forward to accuse him of sexually molesting their daughters, and according to allegations made in an incident report, Deluce and his girlfriend allegedly penetrated the four-year-old with their fingers and performed oral activities on her. Uh, Deluce was hit with aggravated rape and aggravated oral sexual battery charges on October 22, 1997, Later, a pair of videotape statements from the four-year-old were given to the state attorney general's office. This was not the first time that Deluche had been accused of sexual misconduct. Multiple sources close to the KK's corner case said that the lawman made dozens of sex tapes portraying him and a girlfriend in a number of sexual acts, including with a dog. In at least one of the tapes, he was wearing a Violent Crimes Task Force t-shirt. One investigator close to KK's corner case told Ethan Brown that he and his coworkers personally reviewed the videos and identified Deluche. So you can't tell because, because of the personnel records what happened uh, because the Louisiana Attorney General's office has no record of it. There's no record of the molestation case ever being prosecuted by Calcasieu Parish. Over the course of several weeks in the spring of 2016, Ethan Brown tried to get in touch with Deluge, but did not get a return phone call. How crazy is that? Well, I wouldn't expect him to call back, honestly. No, that guy doesn't want to talk about that ever again. So if you're, uh, if you go into uh, murder in the Bayou and and that's, that's the source here as well as you can go on Rolling Stone and look up uh, dark truth behind eight sex workers. Uh, you're looking for the middle chapters, like the 60s to the 90s, where some of this is laid out as background. And I'm going to use this as a segue here. So this is going to end part three of the Jeff Davis 8 of the Louisiana serial cases we're looking at overall. This is going to end that part. And then we're going to do one last episode to sort of talk about uh, the, the end of it. Is that all right with you? That's fine with me. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-365. Five five nine three. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.